This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, January 15th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. For immigrants who want to bring their talents and skills to the United States, why not just let them pay for the privilege? Cato's Alex Narasta makes his case for a new type of work visa in the paper, The Case for an Immigration Tariff. We spoke this week. Why are you coming into my studio pushing tariffs, Alex? This is one of the rare situations in public policy where replacing or adding on a tariff to an existing system actually results in more freedom and liberty for everyone involved. The idea that we proposed here is that we create another visa category in the United States and we sell visas uh, for a price. No other real characteristics will be required except for the person not be a criminal or a terrorist or or sick or anything like that. But we basically sell these. People can come here. They can work, live, not a path to citizenship or anything like that, but they can work and they can live here. And um, as a result, immigration is liberalized. And a lot of the money that people spend on either human smuggling or they spend on lawyers or other going through the regulatory process – would instead just be a lump sum payment to the federal government. Yeah, so you you would imagine that it's a pure transfer away from coyotes to uh, the the federal government, which on balance is probably an improvement given uh, how coyotes are tend to be uh, well not particularly reliable. Uh, that's a nice way to put it. That's a nice euphemism. I don't want to give the federal government more money, but. If we can do it by shrinking the black market through this type of liberalization, I think it's ultimately a win uh, for the United States. The coyotes, a majority of illegal immigrants coming to the U.S. who cross the southern border or enter through a a port somewhere in a shipping container or other means like it's smuggled in, do so by use of a coyote. They're expensive. They're dangerous. There are horrible situations of people dying in uh, in the middle of the desert or suffocating or otherwise being smothered in a shipping container. If we can diminish some of that and at the same time make it so that once they get here, they can actually work legally and pay taxes and capture these benefits, we could charge a higher price than what they pay currently to coyotes, and people will take it because there's actually a guarantee. So for people who receive work visas for the United States, what kinds of limitations are on them right now in terms of employment, in terms of like trying to switch jobs, for example, that sort of thing? There are an enormous number of regulations on this. If you are an H-1B visa holder, which is for uh, high-skilled workers and specialty occupations, you have to have a college degree, minimum of $60,000 salary. You have to be sponsored by an American company. You can only work at the locations listed on the government forms. So if you want to take a conference call from your house in the middle of the night because you're working with a company on the other side of the world, you're an H-1B worker, your house is not listed as an address on the government forms as a workplace, then you are technically in violation of your visa that is considered to be fraudulent, and it can result in the removal of you from the United States and the canceling of your work visa. So, um, And it's very difficult for them to switch jobs. They essentially have to get another firm to offer them a job and then sponsor the visa, 
And then and only then can they switch jobs. So it's a long process, takes a lot of time. For other visas, sort of on the low-end side of the labor market, uh, the seasonal H-2A and H-2B visas, uh, they're here for such a short period of time, they're they don't change employers all that much, except in, in agriculture that they sometimes do, but it's such a low-skilled um, and temporary job that it doesn't get the attention. H-1Bs, however, stay here. Um, it's it's a six-year visa, uh, typically, and then they can renew it indefinitely if they're in a line for a green card. So if they're here for, for decades waiting for their green card, they're working and living under very onerous restrictions. What this immigration tariff does is it removes all those, removes all that nonsense, replaces it with just an upfront fee, which is protectionist. You know, the American, the Congress wants protections for the American labor market. I think it's better that we make that a price. We can argue about the price. It's much easier, it's more efficient, and it cuts lawyers out of everything, which is always a good thing. So one of the uh, arguments here, and this is the thing that, that strikes me the most about uh, employment-based uh, visas in the United States is the fact that, as you mentioned, it is pegged to a specific employer for tech workers, for people who have a great deal of skills to bring to the United States. Uh, they would be more than willing, I would imagine a lot of them would be more than willing to pay that price up front in order to be able to compete in the open market for these very uh, sought-after uh, jobs in the United States. Absolutely. And one of the design features of this immigration tariff that I propose is that um, the price goes up if the person, the, the immigrant, is older and less educated. And the reason why I do that is to make sure that every immigrant has a very positive fiscal impact on the U.S. government taking like some of the worst projections about their fiscal impact. Uh, the good thing is that immigrants who have a bachelor's or more than bachelor's degree in the United States, these high-skilled immigrants you're talking about, um, the price for them to get a gold card, which is what I call the name of the visa under this program, uh, is very, uh, it's cheap. Uh, it's very cheap, and, it, and a lot of them would be willing to do that. Uh, leaving behind those who would not be willing to do it in the normal green card line, which means that they would still get their green cards faster. So it's a win-win for everybody. What stands in the way? I mean, the the upside here for people who like the government to have more money is seems pretty clear. There's a lot more money that could be flowing into the government. What's the scope of that, and uh, what other hurdles would stand in the way uh, politically as you see it? So if 250,000 immigrants buy the gold card in the first year and they have the age and education characteristics of immigrants who have arrived in the last several years to the U.S., so there's no change in that, then it would raise about $10 billion in the first year, not counting the other taxes that they would pay, you know, income taxes or, or, or excise taxes or property taxes. So that's a lot of money. That's enough money to fund... Uh, border Patrol for about three years, for one year, um, for instance. So there's no good argument against it from a uh, fiscal impact uh, perspective. The argument that I have heard against it is, well, this is going to increase immigration, and we don't want to increase immigration at all. So there's nothing that's really going to convince those folks otherwise. Um, my counter-argument to that is like, listen, this type of system is going to incentivize us, uh, especially merit-based immigration, immigrants with more skills who are younger, who have long working lives. And that's what the president has said he's in favor of. That's what a lot of Republican members of Congress and the Senate have said they're in favor of. 
Alex Narasta is a senior immigration policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 